AI has captured the world's attention and imagination and will change nearly every aspect of how businesses are built and run. Business leaders will need to rethink their architectures and adapt to remain competitive. Join us on Cross Validated as we speak to practitioners and builders who are making AI deployments in the enterprise a reality. We'll explore the challenges and opportunities of this transformative technology and discover how it is being used to drive innovation, efficiency, and growth. I think that imagination and innovation goes hand in hand here. And I think that what teams need to look for is really less hardcore software engineering execution if you think of it that way, and more of seeing the opportunities for changing the way that a business operates through these new technologies. Welcome to Cross Validated, a podcast with practitioners and builders who are making AI deployments in the enterprise a reality. I'm your host, Pauline Yang, and I'm a partner at Altimeter Capital, a lifecycle technology investment firm based in Silicon Valley. And I'm your guest host, Rob Taves. I'm a partner at Radical Ventures, a venture capital firm focused entirely on AI. Thanks so much for being our first guest on the show, Danny. You've been involved with AI since the early 2000s and have been leading teams building AI at Microsoft, Amazon, Uber, and now Unity. Would love to just start with telling us what Unity does and what your role is as the senior vice president of AI. Thank you for having me. I've really been looking forward to this session. Unity is, is a game platform, a game engine company. I've had the pleasure, as you said, working for some really well-known brands. And there's a lot of people who don't know Unity, but we are about 75% of all mobile games are built on our platform. So there are about 500 new games shipping every day. Uh, so we are really the preferred uh, platform out there for game developers, for video game developers. It's a very interesting place to be a, a VP of AI because it actually spans pretty wide to what most people would believe. So at one end of the scale of my job is to actually enable monetization for game developers. So that's, that's what some people sort of call the boring AI or machine learning stuff, but it's really about getting ads in front of game players so that game developers and studios can finance their development. And then at the very other end of the scale is creativity. Basically using AI, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about right now with generative AI, to get that in the hands of our game developers so they can deliver higher quality games with a much higher productivity than in the past. Thanks for that overview, Danny. Really exciting where Unity is positioned, really in the middle of the, of the gaming ecosystem and, and increasingly the, the generative AI ecosystem as well. We wanted to start the conversation at a high level by talking about the flurry of news related to AI and generative AI that's been coming out as a kind of steady drumbeat over the past several weeks. There's been a lot of big announcements and releases, but arguably the most newsworthy of all has been OpenAI's release of GPT-4 along with their announcement about GPT plugins last week that enable developers to connect OpenAI's large language models to external applications and, and other external data sources. 
I'm curious to hear your your reaction when you saw these these announcement get, announcements get made over the past several weeks. Let me first say, and the pun is intended here, it's a game changer. That's a fact. Uh, I would also admit, having been in this area for over two decades, I keep getting amazed and surprised at the same time. Things are progressing much faster than than I thought, that anyone thought. Yeah. So I want to be really humble here and just basically say that GPT-4 has actually shocked me. It, I, I know how large language models work. I, I'm actually an expert in, in reinforcement learning. Um, I, I just, I never expected it to be this good this quickly. And, and it goes back, there are other epic moments such as Alpha Zero and Alpha Go from DeepMind where a system could play Go better than any human. That happened five, 10 years before anyone expected that. So we are on a rapid trajectory here. I'm curious, what's been the most surprising application that you found from GPT-4? I think it, it's its uh, ability to play along with you. Remember, a large language model is just really sort of a compressed, uh, it has a compressed version of all information on the internet, all textual information, yeah? But, but, but the fact that it, through reinforcement learning, has learned a policy that allow it to engage in a dialogue with the user. That is pretty innovative. It, it's, it's more than writing a summary of, of, of something. It's more than finishing a paragraph, but it is playing along in character uh, and working with you on your premises, on your instructions. That is really remarkable. That makes sense. I remember when I was first talking to developers about their experience about ChatGPT, it seemed like the magic came from having this thought partner, which required this back and forth that you're talking about. And as you take a step back and think about these developments as it relates to Unity, what has been the biggest or coolest unlock for the business? There's no doubt that if we look at the graphical side first, it is tools like mid-journey and stable diffusion. The fact that you can create graphics that are of awesome quality can be used directly in a game, that's already had, had a huge impact. I gave a fireside chat five months ago. It's five months ago, I asked 150 studios in the room, has anyone played with mid-journey or stable diffusion? And I was prepared to sort of explain what it is and stuff. It was brand new at that time, yeah? Every single hand came. And a few studios, five months ago, had already shipped their first games, generating some of the graphic assets using mid-journey and stable diffusion. That is really an epic moment of change. Yeah, as, as we think about how a lot of these cutting edge new technologies will impact Unity's business. One thing that I think is really interesting is Unity is working on launching a generative AI marketplace for video game developers. Can you explain to our audience the concept behind this and, and what developers can expect from it? It's really a two-sided marketplace. It's also uh, really important to think about uh, the way that there are AI companies, the startups out there who create this fantastic new technology and it's a race and it's a competition to get it to, to the market. At the other end of the other side of the market, they're all the gate developers. They're looking for productivity improvements. They're looking for, uh, 
new technology to dazzle their players. So what we are doing with this marketplace slash ecosystem is to make it easier for the startups, for the technology providers to meet their future customers, the game developers. And, and that's what, that's really the key essence is it's, it's both a, a, a push and a pull. It's a very important moment, uh, uh, to, to be completely upfront here, uh, at, at Unity, we have basically concluded that the developments are going so fast right now. We can't be the builders of all this. We need to bring the builders to our customers, the game developers. And that's what we're doing with this marketplace. It's interesting that, you know, you talked about the 150 studios and everyone raising their hands. How do you think about sort of the importance of speed versus quality versus distribution and sort of as that plays into the role that Unity is in the game development world, how do you balance all of these things? Yeah, it's, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, the way you have to look at it is that, uh, there are a wide range of creators in this world. Some of them are the well-known AAA studios. They spend millions of dollars. They work on games for years, tend to call them sort of the Steven Spielbergs of game creation. And then at the very other end of the scale are individual game developers. Their ability to reach a market very quickly because they, they work on their own dime and they finance this their own way through advertisement, mostly through advertisement. Um, they have very different demands. The big studios, they can, can spend all the money they have on, on fancy graphics. The little people out there, the indies, one, two, three, four people in, in a game studio, they have to use all available tools and they have to hit the market quickly enough to generate revenue for them to create their next game. For them, it's really a lifestyle business. It's a business of love. They, they, they do what they love every day, but they have to, they have to live. So they have to make money on it. And I think that the ecosystem and the marketplace that we are launching is addressing sort of the needs of that indie developer. I know that when Altimeter invested in Unity, that was one of the big reasons why we were so excited about the platform was that Unity was an important part of enabling these individual game developers. If you think about some of the biggest challenges that you found to unlock some of this value from generative AI, what are those and how is a Unity addressing them or overcoming them? It's really a matter of ease of use. I come with them. AI and machine learning background into the gaming industry six years ago. And uh, there was a lot of stuff I wanted to do. And I found it very difficult to do because there are a lot of artistic and creative needs on the game creation side. It's not just about highly efficient infrastructure, et cetera. So often we would have a piece of technology and game developers would look at it and say, well, I don't really have time to deal with because I have a tight deadline here. And that's what you just thought about this, this productivity need. What we have found is, is essentially that a lot of the technology that has been available so far is just too complicated to use. If you are in a big enterprise and you are an AI team and you can study papers and you can experiment all day and then six months later you have something, that's not how game development works. It's not how the business works. And so what we, the, the real challenge here is to bring AI 
to these developers without making them AI technology experts, but they have to be power users of it. Yeah. So ease of use is really what matters here and bring value. This is not an academic exercise. I think that's the most important learning I've had. I have been, um, some of my teams have developed incredible technology that could animate series of characters in a game uh, through reinforcement learning, but it would take weeks, a month. It would take uh, lots of compute resources and you would have to build infrastructure for it. And a lot of developers look at that and say, yeah, it's really cool, but I don't really have time to become a specialist in this. I can't hire anyone for this. I really need tools that allows me to hit the ground running, you know, much, much soon. And Danny, on this, on this topic of so the challenges of, of getting up and running with, with building AI, one thing that I think everyone has come to appreciate much more over the past couple of years is just how expensive and how challenging it is to build AI well in terms of team resources, in terms of compute requirements and so forth. Uh, curious how you would advise companies that are earlier on in their journey with AI in terms of how to think about making those costs manageable and deploying AI in their businesses in a way that's practical? That is actually a very important question. I think we are to a certain extent very, very lucky right now that especially around LLMs, large language models, there's this whole concept of foundation models where all the heavy lifting has already been done. And as a smaller company, you're able to customize or tweak, or fine tune the big model to your particular domain. And that's very fortunate. It may not be something we will see in all cases. Yeah. So let me get back to actually answering the real question, which is how are you going to as a smaller startup, how are you going to be up against companies that have, you know, literally billions of dollars in cloud consumption funding? Yeah, I'm not saying they have it in cash, but they have it in cloud resources. Yeah. How can you compete against that? And I think that, uh, that is very important here to think back to mid nineties and think about internet. Yeah. At that time, everybody wanted to be like the next AOL. Everybody, you know, wanted to be something that brought the internet to people. But at the end of the day, that really boiled down to, to phone companies, AOL offering dial-up lines, phone companies uh, offering DSL and, and cable companies offering high-speed cable connections. Yeah. Uh, and of course, yeah, small companies cannot go in and compete in that space. Yeah. But perfect. Just think about it. 99% of the internet or maybe 99.9% .9 of the internet is actually the services provided on it, not the infrastructure, not being the fiber optical company behind it. Yeah. And I think when you look at AI, you have to, and I want everybody out there to really think about this. You have to think about that 99.9% .9 of AI, not being a uh, large language models, but being the application of those models in brand new areas that none of us can actually even imagine at this point. Yeah. So novel use, uh, be the, be the, the next, you know, Facebook. Yeah. Facebook doesn't run internet. They just offer up uh, social media. I can tell you in the mid nineties, well, social media was not a word. Yeah. It's like nobody thought about it yet. So that's where I think 
we really need to look when it comes to AI, not, not being too humble by, by, by the big players, but really go in and say, nobody's doing this. I can use large language models or I can use generative AI in graphics to create these things that nobody have ever been able to do before and focus on that. Actually, Danny, on that point, can you give us a tangible example where you've gone through that with Unity and sort of how do you think through what exactly you're going to implement? I think we are very careful not to spread ourselves too widely around and try to do everything. Uh, we are trying to, to go in and, and create something that virtually nobody has done before. And I wouldn't give an example of that which is uh, we have spent actually the last five years creating a deep neural net inference machine or engine. Yeah. So basically you can run inference of a deep learned model, a deep neural net right there within your game on any device that Unity supports. So that will range from a Sony PlayStation, Xbox, PC, Mac, all the way to an iOS device or an Android device. Yeah, we we support up somewhere between twenty to thirty different platforms. Yeah, but we will allow you to run deep neural nets across all of those platforms locally on the device. Yeah, nobody else is doing that. This is what Unity is famous for. That's why we are so popular because you can write once and run on many different platforms. And we are bringing that to the AI space. And that's where we put our focus here. Yeah. We don't really want to do uh, chatbots that everybody else can do better than we can. So I think that's an example. We find that particular spot where we can make a difference and we can support our creators. Uh, just think about not having to go back to a cloud service in every single interaction with a player. You can use, you can use these graphical models in the as a part of the, the graphics component of your game, yeah, because there's no latency, it's all, it's all local on your device. If you use a chatbot, you don't have to go all the way back to some internet search cloud service uh, that's going to, you know, charge you uh, real money uh, for that service. Uh, you can do it all the device. I think that that's an example of how we try to, to really focus our resources where it will matter the most for our developers. I think every organization is going to have to figure out what is the most important and what can they deliver for the most important persona for each of these organizations. Given your experience across so many respected organizations, we'd love to talk about the most interesting tips of the trade or hacks for fellow practitioners or people who are just earlier in their journey of deploying AI. You've been at this a very long time. If you reflect on the last 20 years, how would you say or what would you say is the biggest shift in how AI systems are deployed within companies and their own processes over this period? AI and machine learning has had a, a profound impact on a wide range of industries. Early on, it was uh, in the early 2000s, it was on, on very sort of very narrow specific areas such as recommendation was a big one. And what I think, when I look at sort of what has happened over the years, it's really, I see the impact where you would have teams that did hands-on work. They basically saw an opportunity, and I give you a few examples of that, but they saw opportunities to really bring their business forward 
by picking a very interesting area and have a, uh, I would say, a disruptive impact on it. Yeah. Uh, and I can mention a few examples. At Amazon, it was uh, moving from a classic data scientist driven recommendation method for prime video recommendations, which had worked for years and years, yeah, to one where you basically sucked in everything you knew from IMDb and just trained a deep learned model and let it do the recommendations and boom, we'll beat the data scientist, you know, create 30 plus percent lift overnight because apparently all the information from IMDb helped a lot. Yeah. Traditionally at that time, the, the ground rule for data scientists was noise in, noise out. But people who actually played with deep neural nets, deep neural nets have this ability to learn what's noise and what's signal and filled out the noise. That, that's a part of the nature of deep neural nets. So by trying this in practice and actually deployed in A-B testing, you could demonstrate to a big company like Amazon that there's something here that will be a game changer for you. I will give another example that I, I love a lot from Uber was uh, something that uh, TK did not like initially. The vision for Uber was a transportation as easy as running tap water or something like that. You open, you need a taxi, you'll get a taxi. So he did not, he resisted the reservation mechanism. Yeah. Because he did not want to have this idea that a driver would sign up and pick you up at a given time, all that stuff. You should always just get an Uber when you need it. And we all knew reservations were really something that people wanted. So there was a team that basically developed a machine learning model to predict when to make that call. So if you need a car tomorrow morning, 8 a.m., tomorrow morning, they will run the inference engine, the machine learning model, and they will try to predict when to place that, that call to a driver. So actually, you did not get a reservation. They used machine learning to predict, to predict accurately when the driver would be at, at your house. And that was a very neat application. And that, that's actually how reservations at Uber worked for a long time. Yeah. Just again, a practical example that shows people around you that machine learning and AI can actually do magic and, and change the way you do your business. Yeah. Uh, so, so my recommendation to teams are question sort of some of these sort of traditional deterministic ways of doing things and start thinking probabilities. Uh, very often you'll find uh, very neat solutions and they will pave the way for a, a bigger change where everybody starts saying, but this is the future. This is how we're going to do things going forward. Fascinating examples of early applications of machine learning and really in high-impact use cases of both Uber and Amazon. Thanks for sharing those. Uh, on this topic of kind of tips of the trade for operationalizing AI at scale within enterprises, I'm curious to hear your thought from a team perspective and what you think is most important and most necessary in terms of team composition and, and coordination for a company to successfully deploy AI. And maybe specifically, Danny, within, you know, to your earlier analogy, for those 99.9% of companies that are not necessarily building the foundation levels themselves, but are looking to kind of integrate and product. 
I think that imagination and innovation goes hand in hand here. And I think that what teams need to look for is really less hardcore software engineering execution, if you think of it that way, yeah? And more of seeing the opportunities for changing the way that a business operates through these new technologies. Yeah? I think it's very, very important to think about old-fashioned software engineering as what I call Newtonia. It's based on, on Newton, that everything can be computed now, past, and in the future, yeah? which is not true. That's why we have Heisenberg from quantum mechanics and his concept of uncertainty. This is how, how machine learning and AI operates, is by probabilities, is by uncertainty. And that's how our teams need to think as well. Biggest advice, most important advice to these teams is to look at, uh, look broad and look at opportunities within their business to actually deploy these technologies in ways that completely change the way that they do the business um, and have that imagination. And I think that's the biggest shortcoming. It's actually much harder than you think to have these ideas to disrupt your own business. Uh, I gave the example of reservations at Uber. Yeah, I, th I thought that was actually at that time, a very, very neat example of it was, it was actually literally it was a hack week thing. Yeah, it was a hack week. One team demonstrated this. Everybody said, huh, we can do reservations without having a reservation system. Yeah. It's, it's like completely upside down. It sounds easy. Yeah. But it's not easy for teams to come up with this. So that's why we need teams that have. I would say greater diversity, broader experience, and also less risk adverse. I'm curious then as a follow, do you, do you keep this team separate from the rest of the teams that are running sort of the rest of the business or how do you sort of staff up or organize them? I think it's actually it would be very wrong to keep it separate for a very long time. You can initially do that. But I think it's very important to, to understand that the impact of this technology is, is really making a change when it's brought across the car. So notice that I worked for Amazon. Yeah? Uh, machine learning was very near to Jeff Bezos. Yeah? We are not a department that was hidden somewhere deep, deep down. Yeah? No, that was important. And we actually put... Uh, a, a version of the internal machine learning system, we did put that on AWS as the first AI slash machine learning service on AWS, yeah. Because it was, to Jeff B, it was so important to get this out to the world, yeah. Um, and, and you can go to Uber. Uh, this was a TK thing. TK wanted to run Uber more efficiently than anyone else. He knew machine learning AI was going to do that, including the self-driving cars, which... I think was, well, that was a stretch. Yeah. Then at Unity, uh, John Riccitello, our CEO, hired me to have a similar impact on Unity. Yeah. Uh, not just doing it in a corner, but doing it broadly across the company. And as I mentioned in our opening here, my work had been on the monetization side with advertisement networks, something that people uh, don't, you know, think I'm very sexy, but it's, it's, I mean, like, this is what enabled creators to make a living from making games. So it's like, yeah, some people may not like these advertisement networks, but they're actually, actually very important 
for the creators and for all the indies. Otherwise, they can't finance development of their games. And then all the way over to animation and graphics creation and reinforcement learning for NPCs, et cetera, et cetera. Company needs to look at this as something that goes across the company, not just in a corner of exclusive development. On this topic of how the, the practice of machine learning has evolved over the years and decades, I'm curious to hear your reflections on how you've seen the available tooling evolve. Uh, and as part of that question, how you think about or how you would buy, how you would advise listeners and their respective organizations to think about this question of when to buy versus when to build internally for tooling. That's actually a variation of one of my favorite questions, Rob, because I've been through this where early on we would spend five years developing something from ground up. There would be absolutely nowhere to go to get any tools or any, anything. You just have to write all the code yourself. Then gradually I experienced that at Microsoft, there were certain things we could rely on, certain internal tools, certain components that sort of enabled you to maybe create something in a couple of years from scratch. Uh, when I joined Amazon and took over the machine learning team there, we basically, I would say, relied on six or seven other services in AWS. We added more our components to it. So we're looking at that saying, oh, I can maybe now develop a, a service in 18 months, 12 to 18 months, yeah. Uh, when I joined Uber, we went all open source. So we just used a bunch of open source tools uh, and uh, hired a lot of smart people and we could get going in, you know, six to 12 months. So, and where we are today, I think that, and I'm gonna risk something here saying, I think that maybe open source has sort of outplayed itself a bit here. And we are all full circle back to vendor-based software. I am actually starting to become a huge proponent of do not try to download software. Don't invent it yourself. That's number one. Do not try to download and fix it yourself. Just there are vendors out there. Uh, all kinds of services, whether that is labeling services for, for annotating data, it's ML ops, it's uh, your ability to monitor that your, your models are performing well, et cetera. All that stuff at, at Amazon, we had to invent all that stuff, it didn't exist. Today, you can actually purchase that from vendors. You can demand certain quality from them, certain support, and you can now focus on how to change your business not mess around with a lot of software. And I think that we are at that transition now where a lot of companies are either looking or they will soon have to look for bringing in vendors to a degree that we haven't seen in a long time in our space. I'm very curious as to whether that statement extends to large language models, given that there's so many open source models, whether it's Alpaca or Databricks Dolly, do you, do you include that in that category? I think a very concrete example. Um, a lot of people have noticed that mid journey there, the imagery they create gets better and better, just improves. And I know a lot of people who spent, you know, all day using mid journey to generate graphics content for, for game development. And 
At the same time, uh, look at Stable Diffusion, the model distributed open source by stability.ai. It's sort of just the same as, as it was two and three months ago. So the difference is that there's no feedback. You build a model in open source, you share it with the world. The world is happy. Uh, but then the world uses it and they don't actually make it better. The most important element here is what I would uh, characterize as the network effect. The thing that made Google better and better, because every time we click, we help Google sort of figuring out what's important and not important. That feedback loop, MidJourney gets it. The open source projects, they don't really get it. They can retrain, they can share experience, but they're really losing out. So I think that that the thing that makes chat GPT and GPT-4 uh, better than anything else is the feedback loop. That first, that feedback loop were hired people, were contractors paid by OpenAI and Microsoft to provide human feedback for reinforcement learning algorithm. That was sort of the first step. But now Genie is out of the bottle and we are all using it and making it better through our use. When we like something, we use it. When we don't like it, we tell them we don't like it. Yeah, that's, that's how they are going to make it better. Yeah. So I think that with a lot of these systems, we're going to look towards that network effect, that effect of making it better. And that's again, a bit of a game changer. Yeah. It's, uh, it's not just a matter of downloading software and wrap it all up and then move on. No, this is something you have to maintain and maintain as long as it's operational. Yeah, that's certainly a hot take. So appreciate that. As you think about whether it's opportunities in ML ops or, or more broadly, what are some of the biggest opportunities or gaps that you see in building or deploying AI that you'd either like to see Unity or some other company build? I think the most important one to me is transparency. It is the ability to better understand uh, whatever has been generated. Where does it come from? So if, if you're looking at text, it's a bit like, what were the sources for this information? Can, can, can I trust that that number is right? Yeah. Can I go and look it up? Tell me where you got it from. Yeah. Uh, in graphics, it's a bit like, what inspired this particularly uh, graphical image? I want to make sure that I don't stumble into some kind of copyright issue that it actually looks very much like something I just didn't know it. Yeah. So that kind of transparency is, I would say, kind of, kind of completely lacking today. And, and a lot of people talk very abstractly about ethics and all that stuff. Uh, bias in models, etc. Um, try to use Midjourney to generate images of a powerful CEO, and you get you know a vast majority will be white, middle-aged male. Yeah, uh, it would be it would be nice to know more about uh, how models derive this. And the reason I'm smiling here, and you can't see this on a podcast, but that's because with deep neural nets. That is increasingly difficult to do. Transparency is very difficult. Uh, these networks have their ways of doing things, and it's very hard for us, and it's even hard for the, their creators to 
explain some of the outputs. So I think that's a big area that uh, is a big challenge. It's a big area of improvement and something that we could really need. On another topic, there's a lot of discussion and even angst right now amongst startup founders around how quickly the world of AI is moving and what that means for building a, a, an AI startup and, and finding a product to focus on and a, and a customer problem to go after. Now, this is something you've already touched on a little bit, but having spent time in, in senior leadership roles at large companies like Amazon and Microsoft and, and now currently Unity, what advice would you have for early stage startup CEOs today in terms of navigating big tech companies like the Googles and Microsofts of the world and, and the formidable distribution and capital advantages that those companies have. The most important part of my answer here would be what I talked about previously, which was don't, don't try to compete with, with the big guys head on. Don't, don't, don't try to do what they're doing. Try to do what they cannot necessarily do. Yeah. So, uh, try to, um, work out applications. I, I mean, like it's a reason that Google didn't really ship a, a thing like chat GPT first. Yeah. Because it's kind of really not great for their search business. I remember when I was at Microsoft, Google came out with open office and later Google docs and they said, oh, it's free. And Microsoft is like, ah, oh, we can't make office free. It's like, it's a very important business with 10,000 employees in that division. Yeah. We can't make it free. So how can we, you know, that, that kind of competition is, uh, is not very constructive. Yeah. Um, so what I really recommend is to, to look at, at, at these AI and machine learning technologies at the extreme fast progress being made, and then work on, on surprising applications that just people didn't think was possible. And we see a lot of work around uh, how to build 3D structures from just plain video, because, you know, when you play a video, you, you, you get a sense of, of uh, because of the, 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 the different angles that you see objects that you can sort of get a sense of that 3D uh, structure. We have seen a lot of work in, in animation, which is really a hard problem. Uh, a lot of generative AI, if you look at it, is, is text-based, and then it goes from text-based to do 2D graphics. Uh, we, still, we still have ways to go in 3D graphics, so 3D assets, and uh, 4D, you, you, you add motion to it over time, yeah? Then it gets really complicated. There's a lot of stuff that can be done right now uh, that, uh, that you don't have to be, you know, Google size to deal with. It's just really a matter of imagination. Awesome. I'm sure entrepreneurs are going to be so happy to hear that you don't have to have Google size or distribution or CPUs and it all it takes is imagination. So thank you for that. And with that, let's move on to our rapid fire round. So first question of five, what's your definition of AGI and when do you think we'll get there? So. AGI is a complicated thing, yeah? Uh, it is a system, but it's not, it's not a human system, yeah? It's a different species. It's a system that will be way smarter than us on certain points and not as smart as we are on other points. It's like when you look at animals. 
docs, they have a good nose. We don't have a good nose. Yeah, there are certain features that we don't have. AGI is is not an uh, remember the early days when plane makers they tried to make airplanes with flapping wings. Yeah, so trying to make an AI system that mimic our brain, forget about it. That's not AGI. Yeah. So I think AGI is this other species. It's very smart on certain points, not on all, and it could be a fantastic partner for us, and we will be very impressed with it. We're not there yet. I think this is probably another 10 years, but not necessarily much longer than that either. I'm going to risk here because it's difficult to predict. When will you know, though? At what, what needs to happen for you to know we've gotten to AGI? It needs to be highly competitive at the level of the intellect to a human. So understanding very complex relationships in a 3D world, whether that is actually truly a self-driving car, which is still way out there, yeah? It's really understand the complexities that goes on between uh, humans and when humans interact. One of the points of humans is that the last 100,000 years, our brains have not been updated. Our brains are the same hardware as when we were in the jungle in Africa. But we have been able to put a person on the moon since then, surely by developing communication, language, organization between us. Yeah. So when we look at AI, AGI means probably multiple AI systems working together. And we are going to see the steps towards these systems that are going to create their own feedback loops, are going to do stuff where we are like, wow, I, I, we, humanity, could not have done that. All right. Second rapid fire round question related to the AGI topic. Uh, this is a, a topic that's been on a lot of folks' minds recently. How much do you worry, Danny, about the existential risk that a powerful AI could pose to human civilization? I believe that there is an existential risk there. Uh, I think it is very important that we are not too humble there and that we basically decide on who controls AI systems. It has to be with the human aspect because these systems, uh, and I know that up and close, these systems are incredibly good at optimizing. They will optimize and they will work around and they will find loopholes and they will do whatever they can to be more efficient. And humanity cannot allow them to just work around us. Yeah, that, that, that would be very dangerous. Yeah, I do want to say that I think that climate change is going to kill us way sooner than any AI and that we actually need really smart AI to help us solve uh, that global crisis. But that's probably a different topic. Third, what is the most exciting AI application you've seen outside of your company? I mentioned that I, I think GPT-4 as a chatbot, as an in-character chatbot, the fact that you can, you can ask it to be, uh, hey, you are now Super Mario. Yeah, I want to talk. I want to have a conversation with you and you have to stay within that character. I mean, like, that's pretty impressive that you can now start creating games that are just operating within character, but but you don't have to script everything. I think that's going to have a profound impact on development of games. Graphics, I already talked about that. That's a big one too. 
All right. Next question. This is quick forgetting the classic Peter Thiel question. What is one thing that you believe strongly about the world of AI today that you think most people out there would disagree with you about? Yeah, that's, um, I, I, I think I'm more, uh, I'm more, uh, optimistic on, uh, on, on when AGI is going to happen and on the, on the impact, the true impact of AI. I think that a lot of people think it's going to be, uh, sometime in the future, meaning, you know, far, far out. And a lot of people are going to be very disappointed in the very short term that we are not making more progress. Uh, but I worked very closely, uh, with, uh, the early days of the internet and I, I have seen that impact it has had now, uh, that we could never have, never have imagined. So, so I am probably more bullish on, on AI than most people actually, uh, I'm not that scared of it, but uh, I think because I think we actually needed to help us. And last rapid fire question. What is the biggest challenge facing AI practitioners or researchers today? Imagination. I mean, like every time you have an idea, you start looking around, someone is already working on that. It's really, really become extremely challenging to be out there in front. And, uh, and I, I think I see a lot of, uh, Increment, very incremental work. I see a lot of repetition out there. I, I would really love to see much more, you know, disruptive and, and really innovative stuff. And I know it's hard. It's really hard. Uh, but we really need to push the boundaries. Danny, thank you so much for coming on and being our first guest on Cross Validated. This has been such an illuminating conversation. And I want to thank Rob for joining me as well. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for chatting with me. A really great conversation. And wonderful questions. I really enjoyed this and I hope it's useful, been useful to you and to your listeners. Thanks, Danny. Thank you.